We begin a new series today. The series title is called Saved People, Serve People. Before we begin, I just want to thank you for being here. So glad you've come. So glad you're here and ready to learn and ready to see what God has for you. This Save People, Serve People is an expression that perhaps if you've been here for a while, you've heard us say before because it's one of our core statements and hopefully you'll hear it a lot through this series, but you'll also hear it in the future as well as uh, this, we have seven core statements that kind of keep us on target, keep going after some of the main things and help people take steps from wherever they are to where God wants them to be. And I say them, 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 to help us take steps from wherever we are to where God wants us to be. It includes me as well. Save people, serve people. A couple of things that I just want to make clear before we move forward in this. Um, people don't have to be saved to serve. A lot of people serve people, but if you're saved, it would be terrible if you didn't serve, because Jesus, we've been talking about this and singing about it and thinking about it this whole time together already, Jesus left glory to become the servant of all and to be our servant and to give us the gifts of grace that save us, and having saved us, he calls us to follow him, and following him means doing like he did, serving. And so we're going to be looking at the topic tonight, serving satisfies me. Serving satisfies me. Now, that idea maybe is a little foreign to the population as a whole. Most of the time, the population as a whole doesn't look for satisfaction through serving. We look for satisfaction in other ways. And even though I am thoroughly convinced that serving really is satisfying, um, there's part of me that rebels against that, and sometimes I'm looking for something else for satisfaction. And maybe you do too, where we look for satisfaction in the, well, I really would like that particular dessert, because that would be totally satisfying. And then if I have too much, uh, there's satisfaction just kind of diminishes and almost there's a guilt that takes over and the satisfaction is completely gone. It doesn't really fully satisfy. And yet there's still a part of me that thinks satisfaction comes through this and that and this and that. So it is my task to talk to you, to motivate you along the line of there is a serving that fully satisfies. And that's our focus for tonight. Serving fully satisfies. I hope that when you came in, you were handed a bulletin. In the bulletin, there's a handout that we normally refer to, and that has the outline on the front and the study on the back, but there's an extra handout inside the bulletin that's different, that's usually not in there, and it has the save people, serve people on the top, and it has different areas of service, and I want you to be looking at that, and hopefully you may even be motivated, if you haven't already gotten involved in service, to experiment with a service area to see if it might be satisfying to you. Because here's what I believe. I can stand here and I can try to convince you and motivate you and tell you that serving is really satisfying, but really, teaching doesn't accomplish that. I can't teach you in a way where you will experience and decide from my teaching, yes, I believe it. Serving is satisfying. The only way you'll really believe it is through experiencing it, where you experience a serving 
opportunity of service that you did, and it's so satisfying. It's even more satisfying than what is typically we think of as satisfaction as self-serving. This would satisfy, satisfy me if I had this. And that serving of self is less satisfying than serving of others. Now, we're going to jump into that concept a little bit, but uh, before we do, I want to tell you a little story about me. Here's a set of books that I bought when I was in high school. They're looking kind of old and ratty. There's six of them in the box because I've pulled one of them out. It's a seven-book series called The Chronicles of Narnia. I bought it for myself in high school because as a child, my uh, dad read these out loud to the to us, and if you can just picture the scene, uh, I, I vividly remember him reading in, a, in one particular season in our, in our life, uh, I was in the top bunk, and my little brother Billy was in the bottom bunk, and he's not Billy anymore, and I'm not Jimmy anymore, but Jimmy was in the top bunk, and Billy was in the bottom bunk, and my dad was reading uh, these stories to us. What's really fascinating about this is that C.S. Lewis, who wrote these stories, uh, wrote them in 1950, and then uh, built off of those. So the first one, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, written in 1950. There have been 100 million copies of these sold now. And I was so enthralled by these that um, I had to buy my own set in high school, or maybe it was college, I don't remember, somewhere right in there, maybe my freshman year, I wanted my own set. And then later on, when my children were old enough to understand these stories, we read them out loud to our children. And I understand that my children are now beginning to read them out loud to their children. So it, they have quite the impact. I want to pick uh, The Silver Chair, which is the middle book of the seven, so book four. And I want to read a little excerpt. I will not be reading all seven books tonight. And I'm not reading this because I'm short on material. <laughs> I'm reading this because of a particular thought that it introduces as we are jumping into this topic. Um, you'll notice the lion on the screen. Uh, Narnia is a, if you haven't heard or seen the movies or anything, uh, Narnia is a, a made-up world that C.S. Lewis describes, a world of talking animals. And in this world that is a parallel world that they can enter into through different means when they're pulled into that world, there are um, key characters that are parallel to the characters in our world. And so this lion's name is Aslan, and he is the parallel character to Jesus Christ in our world. And Jill, who in the silver chair, enters Narnia for the first time, knows nothing about this. And so here we read. Jill got up and looked round her very carefully. There was no sign of the lion, but there were so many trees about that it might easily be quite close without her seeing it. For all she knew, there might be several lions, but her thirst was very bad now, and she plucked up her courage to go and look for that running water. She went on tiptoes, stealing cautiously from tree to tree and stopping to peer round her at every step. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf, a stone's throw away from her, 
But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into a stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it like the lions of Trafalgar Square. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, a place in England. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, she thought, and if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt that, would, that she would not mind being eaten by a lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper wilder and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. While you, will you, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now, without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do, do you eat girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I, 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 I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose... I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen this stern face 
could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished. Now, she realized that this would be, on the whole, the most dangerous thing of all. She got up and stood there with her lips still wet from drinking. Come here, said the lion. And I'll stop right there and let you decide whether you're going to read the rest of the book. But the point of reading just that section, sorry, I'm cruel, is to help you understand a couple of things in this parallel world of C.S. Lewis. Aslan said, there is no other stream. And we're going to talk about serving the Lord Jesus Christ is fully satisfying, more satisfying than any other stream. So you could, in a sense, say there is no other stream. I think that we kind of think there still is. I do. I know that even though I know better, I often think there's another stream that will satisfy me more. There's this other stream that's going to satisfy me right now. I really want a little bit of this right now because I really think that'll satisfy me. But as it turns out, in comparison to the cool, clear, clean, fully satisfying water which the Lord Jesus Christ offers, what I am yearning for is muddy. What I am yearning for in that moment, thinking it will satisfy and it's a different stream, maybe is even defiled by cows just upstream. And I'm wanting this thing that I think is going to satisfy, but by the time I drink of it, it is completely unsatisfying in comparison if you will just experience a taste of what it tastes like to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in a fully satisfying way. We're going to jump into the Gospel of John first. On this screen is John chapter 4, the words of Jesus about water as it relates to what I just read. He's at a well. He's at a well with a woman who has a sketch reputation, and you can get into that, which we're not getting into tonight. On the flip side of your outline, you can study some of those questions, talk it over with somebody, even in your group, if you would like to do that, and get into the details. But he says this to the woman. Everyone who drinks this water, she came out to a well to gather in pots, water to bring back to her home. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So there is a source that will be placed inside of us if we would just receive it. And of course, Jesus is talking about how once it's all done, his mission is accomplished, he has accomplished the task of covering us over with a forgiveness that he purchases by his own shed blood. And because of his righteousness, he's able to buy us back 
from being lost in the kingdom of darkness. And he ransoms us to become a follower. But in order to do this, he has to pay our debt. And he covers over our debt with his payment, which is righteous. And we become forgiven. Having been forgiven by what Jesus has done, now he gives us his spirit. And his spirit can enter into our lives. And this union that we experience is the union that he even describes as a union that he experienced with his father that he calls the full measure of my joy. And he prays that the full measure of my joy may be theirs that believe in me, in John 17. And this full measure of joy is a satisfaction that comes from the Spirit of God, us in union with the Spirit of God, that through the grace that we receive, are able then to serve with a grace and a power that's not our own, welling up from within us to make a difference for somebody else. And when you experience that, There is nothing like it. It's beyond something you could have pulled off on your own by simply serving. It's a a combination of, of you making yourself available and then God doing something through you to make a difference in somebody's life. And we want to talk more about this. Now, I'm teaching and I'm talking, but teaching and talking is not as motivating as when you experience this for the first time. When you experience... Wow, there is nothing quite like this. This is really amazing. It's fully satisfying to see something like this happen. And I, had, I, I was involved in it. There's an experience waiting for you to help you feel some of that. So the disciples learned, not by teaching as much as through experience, how this might work. We're going to jump into the Gospel of Mark. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark is on page 703 in that chair Bible in front of you. You want to reach down and grab it. We're going to be reading through multiple verses together, and I'm not going to put these, stringing them all together on the screen. So Mark 6, 30 through 44. If you don't have an easy-to-read Bible and you'd like to have one, that Bible that you just grabbed in front of you, you can keep that. We'd like to give that to you as a gift if you'd like to read further on your own. You might write your name in it. There's a lot of Bibles that look alike here. Mark 6, 30 through 44. Here's what we read. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Now, a couple of explanations. Apostles, that's a word we don't use very much around uh, our culture. Apostles is a word for those who are sent on a mission. They represent the person who sends them. The 12 disciples were called apostles because they were sent on a mission. In fact, in this chapter, just half a chapter earlier, um, they were sent on a mission to teach and to do miracles and cast out demons in the name of Jesus, and they were all excited because it worked, it worked. We've seen you do it, and we've done it, and it happened. It was amazing. And verse 30 is just kind of coming back and telling about their experiences. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. But then there's a new experience coming. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Oh, that sounds so good. They had a busy, busy day. It was getting even busier. It was getting really crazy busy. They had missed some meals. They're hungry. It's getting late in, late in the afternoon, late in the evening. Uh, they, they, need, they need a break. There's huge crowds gathered around Jesus. 
And they're getting bigger because of these excursions of the apostles teaching and telling people about Jesus. And this crowd is so big, but they're so grateful that Jesus says, okay, let's, let's get some time alone. Let's get some rest. And they get into a boat. But it doesn't work. Here's what we read. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, verse 32. Verse 33, but many who saw them leaving, recognizing them, and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. That verse uh, doesn't maybe get off the right flavor of it. As they're seeing the boat leave the shore, they're tracking with the boat, and they're all running after the boat, and as they're running by from along the shoreline, other town people are seeing the crowd running, and they're joining in the run, and the word is getting out stronger and stronger, and more and more people are following this boat, trying to figure out where it's going to land, to meet up with Jesus again. Verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, which you need to know, the crowd was big before. It's much, much, much bigger now. We're going to find out in the last verse just how big it is. It's much bigger now. He had compassion on them. Now, that's kind of amazing because they're all tired. They're all hungry. They wanted to get away, to have something to eat, to rest, to recoup. But Jesus has compassion on this crowd. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples come to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Now, to me, it seems like the disciples' request is reasonable. We came here to get some time out, to come to a solitary place to escape the crowd. The crowd is bigger. It's getting dark. We don't have anything for them. They're going to stay as long as you keep teaching. Can you just tell them, okay, go on now. We're done. Go get something to eat. It sounds reasonable. And then Jesus' response sounds not reasonable. It sounds that way. You give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. This is a big crowd. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Then Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. Okay, you start out with five loaves and two fish, and everybody eats, and we're just about to find out how big the crowd is, 
I'll just go ahead and finish verse 44. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. And that day, it was very common for a, a crowd count to count the heads of households, count the men as heads of households. So we've got 5,000 heads of households. So this crowd is more than 5,000. Chances are very good it's larger than 15,000. And everybody has eaten off of five loaves and two fish, and after everybody is eaten and fully satisfied, the disciples go gather up the leftovers and they have a basket full apiece. Twelve basketfuls of leftovers. And that's the experience that we're just going to ponder for a little bit because what the disciples experienced, they learned lessons about serving. And that's what we want to figure out. So if you want to pull out your outline, outline point number one is this. Everyone is hungry. Take a look at verse 31. I'll put it on the screen. Then because so many people were coming and going that they, the disciples, did not even have a chance to eat. They're hungry. He said to them, come with me and be by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Then we read later on, a few verses later, verse 36, I think it is. Send the people away so that they can go to buy the surrounding, go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Okay, everyone is hungry. Okay, let's just talk about hunger for a minute. Hunger is, simply put, the lack of satisfaction, right? Hunger is the lack of satisfaction. Hunger is the same thing as unmet needs. But here we have an interesting scenario because these people have run away from their homes, run off, and they ran with, without provision, without food, just to meet with Jesus and see Jesus. Why is this? Because they're hungry. They'll skip meals because they're so hungry for Jesus. They're hungry for hope. They're hungry for teaching. They're hungry for healing. And Jesus had been healing and touching and ministering and praying for people. And people are getting well. And so the crowds are gathering. They are hungry for meaning. And food is really low on the list when all of these satisfying things are taking place. It's like the crowd, they would just stay longer and longer and longer as far as they're concerned. We can go a day. We can go two days without food if we need to because this is amazing. They're being filled up with meaning and spiritually their hunger is being satisfied. They're just in awe of the things that this man is saying and that he's the one, he's the one they've all been hoping for. They're hungry for hope and deliverance. This is pretty amazing. Everyone is hungry. Point number two. You are invited to a miracle. You are invited to a miracle. So all these hungry people are there, and it's very reasonable for the disciples as they send them away. It's time for them to go get their food. They need to go home. They need to buy food. And we can't provide it. Reasonable request. But Jesus says, this is the moment where you're going to learn something through a miracle that is about serving. You're invited to experience a miracle of God when you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You get front row seats when you're serving for the purpose of helping people have those unmet needs met by Jesus. When you serve in that way, there's a miracle that can take place that you get to see. Stories just pop up in front of you that 
just by your serving, it's a story of grace that comes to another individual and they get excited about what God is doing in their life. One of my prayers today was that new stories of grace would just start today and that these stories would just spontaneously be told to other people because the whole program that Jesus has is to come and give us grace and keep giving us grace. And for eternity, we're going to tell these stories about how Jesus did this and he did that in my life and in your life. And these stories are going to give glory and honor to Jesus. So when we're invited to serve, we're invited to have a front row seat, actually a participation in a miracle. And so we kind of need to talk that through a little bit. So Mark 6, 37 Here's a reminder again, but he answered, you give them something to eat, which causes them to have this reaction like, and it's the normal reaction. And here's what I know about you because here's what I know about me. We all have a million and one things that are pressing in our lives that we have filled our schedules with. And when we start a series like this, Save people, serve people, and we're showing you a sign-up sheet to serve more, and you're going, oh, great. I mean, I would be like this because I am like this. It's like, are you kidding me? I don't have any more time. I don't have any time to give any more. I am all gaved out. (laughs) Every, Every single piece of my life is saturated busy. And that's what the disciples were feeling. They had missed their meals. They were exhausted. They had come away to try to get some rest. And now Jesus says, you give them something to eat. It's like, with what? (laughs) With what? I do not have what it takes to serve because I don't have any energy. I don't have any, any resources. I don't have enough to handle this. And this is part of what I want us to feel. What the disciples felt, we feel. And I think we feel it with just a little bit more amp, really. Why? We're Americans. And we are busy. We are crazy busy. And we like to be crazy busy. In fact, it's like a a badge of honor to be crazy busy, right? So crazy busy that to do anything else is like, are you kidding? We think it's totally reasonable to say, "Uh uh-uh, there is no part of me that can offer any more. I am all Gave doubt, is that what I said earlier? <laughs> Sounds good. Point number three. I want us to talk about three words in the text. I'm, I'm going to actually change translations to get these three words to sound just like this. Blessed, broken, and given away. This is how it works with Jesus. He says, what do you have? They find the, what little they have because they think they don't have enough. They put it in the hands of Jesus, and what does he do with the bread? He holds it up, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it away. So blessed, broken, given away. I just want to say those three things together, and I want you to say it after me. Ready? Blessed, broken, given away. One more time. Blessed, broken, given away. This is a pattern that we see in the life of Jesus, not just with bread, because he does this repeatedly with bread. He holds it up, He blesses it before God, and he breaks it, and he gives it away, okay? Now, this is the pattern of what he does with us, too. We put ourselves in his hands. We trust him with our own time, with our own resources, with our own being. And when we give ourselves to him in any of those ways, 
he holds us up and he blesses us. And then, this is the part that's going to be hard, we're going to talk about it in a moment. He breaks us. And then he gives us away. Okay? So let's talk that through a little bit. Um, but here's the passage, verse 41 in the ESV. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, A blessing. And he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. All right? So here's the word, broken. What does that mean? As it relates to this pattern, if he's going to bless us, and then we're broken, what is that about? All right? I think that when you truly are saved, there's a part of you that must break. And it's that self-centered pride part that I'm in control of my own life. I'm the ruler. I'm my own God. I'm my own king. I'm my own supreme being of my own world. I call the shots. I'm the boss. This is my life. You can't tell me what to do. This is me. Something has to break there. And when Jesus Christ gives himself to us and covers our sin and our debt and ransoms us out of the slavery to sin and the power of sin and releases us with grace, something inside breaks and we absolutely want to follow him. We want to respond and love him because that grace changes us from the inside out to the point of overflowing unto others. And then here's what it looks like when you're broken in this way. Maybe for the first time, you see a hurt in the world and for the first time, you see it like a person that was hurt before has been blessed now made whole, no longer hurting, and you see somebody else in the place that you used to be. And now, your heart breaks for them. In the story, we heard about how Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion for the crowds. His heart broke for them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. His heart was broken for them, and he's going to literally go through the process of breaking his heart for them and giving himself away to them. Now he's calling us to the same. He blesses us so that we will be heartbroken for others to be given away and serve them. Broken. Now, I even think that if we're so calloused and so numb that we're never heartbroken over the hurts in the world, we need to evaluate whether we're truly saved. We need to evaluate whether we've ever really received a new heart, whether our feelings beat with the heart of Christ if we can't feel the compassion for another and feel the hurt for another. Now, I do believe that God actually gives us a, a broken heart, and it's different for different people what breaks our heart. For what breaks the heart of one person might be different than what breaks the heart for me. And maybe when your heart is broken, God is saying to you, when you're feeling like somebody needs to do something, somebody needs to do something for them, and it's, it's a problem, it's big, there's so many, somebody needs to do something. And if you're feeling that, Jesus is saying, I want you to do something. And you're gonna go, wait, me? I don't have the resources. I don't have what it takes. I can't do this. You're gonna feel exactly the same thing the disciples felt. There is no way. I don't have, what could I do? I'm a nobody. No, you said somebody needs to do something. You're a somebody. And you're brokenhearted over this. Maybe this is the area that's gonna be so exciting when you begin to serve there. The next word I want us to talk about is excuses. The disciples had them. They're just like us. I don't have enough. There's no way. Here's an excuse I hear around here a lot. 
Um, maybe you don't, but I do. It's like, wow, you've got a really tight ship here. You've got everything spinning like a smooth spinning top. And I'm thinking, uh-uh, <laughs> you don't know behind the scenes. You have how many volunteers? 166 volunteers that make this thing run? Wow, you don't need me around here. Eh, wrong. We totally need you around here. We need to double that workforce. You're kidding me. No, we really do. To reach the next hundred, and even to reach the next one, and even to do a better job right now, we have holes and gaps and people that we need to serve in some spots. And so as you're looking through the sheet and thinking about whether you want to explore and experience what we're describing in a little moment here, I want you to think about that. We need you. Excuses. Now, the next word I want us to explore is extraordinary. And that's my favorite word of all of today. Extraordinary. Because really all God is asking for is your ordinary. And then he's going to bring the extra. And then if you bring your ordinary and he brings the extra, you get to witness the extraordinary. And that is an incredible concept. So here are the disciples, and the disciples are going, what? We don't have what it takes. Are you kidding me? There's 15,000 people here. And instead of focusing on what they do have, they totally focus on what they don't have. What we don't have here is the ability to feed this crowd. I do not have the ability to feed this crowd. Then Jesus says, but what do you have? Go assess. Oh, wow. Because here's what we do. We compare. We look at the stage and we think, I can't play the guitar like that. I can't sing like that. Or we look at the teaching. I when I open my mouth, I can't talk like that. But Jesus says, but what do you have? Can you give what you have? I want you to give what is ordinary for you. And then when you give what is ordinary for you, I'll add the extra. Then we're going to witness something extraordinary. And then you're going to go, I can't believe this just happened. All I was doing is just serving in kids' church and serving this. And this little kid, he said, today I asked Jesus to be my savior. And we hear about this kind of miraculous thing take place because we are giving our ordinary and God is adding the extra and grace is pouring through us in the ordinary. Point number four. Do I want more or less? All right, here's an easy question for you. This is really easy. How many of you want less? All right, told you it was easy. How many of you want more? All right, I want more too. All of us want more. We want more of God. We want more of grace. We want more of this kind of experience. We want more of the ex extraordinary. Sometimes we want more of the wrong stuff too. We're all searching for more, and we're searching the wrong streams, and Jesus is saying, there's just this one stream. Would you just serve me? Learn that life is fully satisfying when you learn to connect with me and learn that this is real, that I can bring the extra to your ordinary if you'll serve and do those kinds of things for me. And then what happens? You think you just have five loaves and two fish, and what happens when you just give your five loaves the ordinary and the two fish, and you just give the ordinary? God says, okay, you think... You're going to have less if you give what little you have. I have, so, I have no time. I'm all given out. Gaved out? Is that the word? I'm all gaved out, and I can't give any more. And he says, just serve. I'm asking you to serve. All of a sudden, you got more time. 
I have no money, I have no resources. Just, but if you give a little bit, awesome, boom, it's like, I'll give the extra. Just open up your heart. The disciples gave five loaves to Jesus. He broke it, gave it away through them, and they collected more, more than they could have imagined was possible. God always blesses. Here's the deal about the excuses we give. Jesus says, uh, that excuse doesn't hold water. You think you don't have the resources, but I know who is the source that you're connected to. The source that you're connected to made the entire universe out of nothing when he spoke it into existence. When you're connected to God and the source is in you, all of a sudden, you just open up and serve me and I will multiply. I will bless, break, and give it away. We are already at the end of my time, so I want to just wrap up by bringing us right to the closing prayer. I want to just tell you about this prayer that I wrote out for us as it relates to this topic. We're going to pray a prayer that basically says, God, we need more. We need more of you. We need more grace. We need you in our life. And I admit, I still am searching for satisfaction in all the wrong places, and I want you to be the source. I want to learn what it's like to experience what it's like to find you as the source for me. I hope that you'll want to pray that kind of prayer and seek out that experience and what that looks like for you. Would you stand with me? Here's what that prayer looks like. I want us to read it out loud together and uh, see what God does. Out loud and slowly. Here we go. Dear Lord Jesus, just like those tired and weary followers we read about today, I also have many unmet needs that I find myself busy trying to satisfy. Sometimes I try to meet these needs in ways that do not fully satisfy. And it's true, sometimes I don't see other people's needs because I'm focused on my own needs. Forgive me for my self-serving ways. You are my Savior and Lord. I need you today. Please teach me to find life's fulfillment in you. You love me and gave your life as a sacrifice for me, and I thank you for that. I want to serve you. Open my eyes to ways I can serve you. I offer you my ordinary. Please add your extra and do something extraordinary. I ask this so that I can honor your name and reputation. It's in your powerful name and authority, I pray. Amen.